Middleton, Giannis trailing the lob. Oh! Run, two on one. Green the finish. Wow, the alley oop. Rock turned the corner. Inside! He made Yusuf Nurkic just screams here. Here comes Murray. Alley up to Gordon. Oh, what a play! Joined now by my friend Matt Moore at HP Basketball on Twitter. He is at the Action Network, also does Locked On Nuggets. Really excited for this episode because when I approached Matt, he, he and I are good friends. We are close in the Denver sphere, and I was obviously really appreciative for Matt to come on. Uh, when I approached Matt about this, there are certain things that you do within this sphere, within the basketball space, and one of them is the MVP conversation. And you're very focused on that. That's one of the things that you took pride in, in doing the work. And I wanted to give you an opportunity here, uh, not that you need it, but like, I want to give you an opportunity here to expand upon why you started doing that and just what makes it interesting in your head. Yeah. So it started when I was at CBS, you know, I was uh, a full-time writer and I would do analysis and aggregation and reporting. And so if you're going to like, if you're going to cover the league in that kind of detail and, and that holistically, as we tried to do there, you're going to wind up talking about the MVP. And I don't know how you really cover the league. If you're going to do it from an analysis or commentary standpoint, I don't know how you just like ignore MVP. It's too big of a part of not only the league's tapestry and the, the discussion amongst fans, but it's a big part of the league's history. And, you know, I started to really kind of consider that as like what an honor it is to like just you know, be a part of the discussion in the sphere about the most important award in the league's history, because uh, it really does define the best player throughout. And it sparks a lot of conversation, sometimes good, sometimes bad. Um, and and so to be able to kind of really dive into it. And as with most things, I kind of think that there are always going to be things that when you cover a league and not a team, and even, I think it actually is true with a team, too. Um, there's going to have to be certain things that, that are talked about and you're going to have to decide whether you just don't care about them at all. Or conversely, do you want to really care about them and really invest yourself in? And that's where I got to with MVP was like, I either need to like ignore all of this and be like, it's just a super superfluous narrative award. Or I really want to figure out like, what's the best way to approach this? How do you answer most valuable? And so I started to really explore those questions and do deep dives. And I was lucky enough to have a vote for one year, one year I got a vote before I left for action. Um, at CBS, I was I voted in the 2017 campaign and it was really great. And I love covering um, the award. I love covering how voters think. I love covering the the conversations. And And in general, this is one of the things I think is really important is the 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 MVP discussion is really about who do we think impacts the league the most. And you could do it by, like, there's all sorts of ways to define that. But that, that's what we really get into. Um, some people are like, well, it's the best player. Okay, well, if you think he's the best player, you probably think he impacts the game the most because he's the best. I don't necessarily subscribe to that logic. Um, but... It's that's is what it becomes about. And it's about like this defining between who's had the best season versus the best player and all these types of things. These questions are very interesting to me, not only from an analysis of the player standpoint, but also from the perspective of how we talk about it. And so it hits on a lot of things that I'm really interested in between basketball um, players and how they impact winning. And then also, you know, from a social psychology standpoint, 
how we then process and talk about these players differently because of what they do or don't. And, and all those things are really fascinating to me still. The conversation over the course of the last few years, especially has, I sort of taken, sort of taken that turn into that sociological perspective where uh, there's been a very uh, strong vocal majority, a very strong vocal minority on how the, or the award races have gone, which players have won the awards, who gets to kind of decide what those awards mean and, and how much are they valued. And uh, there has been a lot of, I think, controversy, of course, over the course of these past few years, uh, coinciding with Nikola Jokic's rise. And he's won a couple of MVPs, missed out on the last award race in part due to the MVP conversation itself, which is pretty fascinating. So I've been very curious to see sort of how this one would evolve. And we have some interesting data here through the first quarter of the season. You and I are going to kind of go back and forth on this award throughout the year, uh, do kind of a quarter mark, halfway point, three quarter mark, and then kind of a, a final MVP conversation at the end of this thing. And it should be interesting to see how that evolves and, and where our sort of approach sort of takes it. So I, I'm looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to kind of going through the value conversation and then who that, like what we each value the most and whether they kind of line up and don't line up in this case. Um, my question to you, you voted on the award before. How would you define most valuable player just kind of heading into this conversation? Yeah, for me, it's who impacts winning the most when they're on the floor. That's what I had to get to. And um, it's one of the reasons why when I went down kind of interrogating the questions about MVP and how to decide this, I had like, that's the most interesting part of it to me is, you know, look like this player is awesome. This player is more awesome. Okay, cool. Like, I don't know, you know, so it's like we, we can parse out these kind of things. And so looking for evidence, but when we, especially, you know, you can, and look, that's like a narrative thing, but you can also be like, well, his his BPM is higher, so he's better. Okay, all right, but we know that these measures aren't exact. We can admit that. We know that you need to be able to to play some context on all this. And so, I really do get really wound up with okay. You need to be able to produce because you can't just be a guy that when you're on the floor, your team wins because you need to be able to show that you are directly impacting things. So production matters: points, assists, rebounds, steals, blocks, right? Field goal percentage, EFG. Two pointers, free throw, the whole the whole box composite. You need to be able to show that you have that that tangible impact on it. You also need to be able to demonstrate that because you're on the floor, your team is better. It can be simply that you're scoring so efficiently that teams can't keep up because you're so efficient. It can be that you're the primary engine of a top offense in the league or the best offense in the league. It could be that you're a dominant two-way player and you put so much force and pressure on the opponent that eventually they crack and break. That's a very Giannis argument to make. Um, but for me, it's always about how much do you impact winning because the point of professional sports is money but the second point of of professional sports is winning and so it, that's why we do this like that's why we the whole thing exists is for teams to compete and win and for people to pay money to watch teams try and win and so winning has got to be at the center of all of this now 
where we, that gets lost is like people then don't take it any further. They're like, well, I, I think it's about winning and they've got the best record. Da, da, I don't know. Ah, ah, ah. Okay. <laughs> How did they do when he was on the floor? How did they do when he was out of the game? How did they do when he didn't play that night? How did they do all these things? Um, I decided that I don't care about the minutes where you're not on the court. And that's a very controversial statement for a lot of people because they're like, well, it's most value. So if your team sucks without you, and they're good with you, then clearly you're the most valuable. And I'm like, well, no, because it's about how much, how good are you when you're on the floor? Like your team being terrible without you is not a measure of your greatness. That's a reflection of the roster not being good. But if you're a plus 15 and they are a minus 15, now you have me interested because I'm like, it's literally a 30 point swing. But a better way to look at that is just to be like, is anybody better than 15 points? with you on the floor. But is anybody better than that? And it's got to translate to wins too, because I'll say this, if you're dominant in your 30 minutes, but you can't go further because you don't have the conditioning, that matters too. So there's all these kind of ways to parse it, but we're trying to find the nexus of how does what you contribute to your team make them more likely to win? And that to me is the central question of most valuable player. It's also important to remember, and for viewers at home, Every MVP rate race is different. It's just not the same. Everything is going to like each season is going to have its own complexities, its own story. And, and that's one of the things that people talk about with the race as well, is that the MVP sometimes defines the story of the season mm-hmm. as opposed to just a an objective measurement. And so we've we've gone back and forth about this offline before about, hey, there are different voters and different people value different things, and that's why having a wide swath of uh, different perspectives is important on this. We're probably the more like analytical objective perspective of this, but there are different voices that are going to answer for different. They're going to answer different questions about the NBA season. Uh, For me, like I, I think that the player that adds the most value to their team during an 82 game season is my MVP. And like, that's the most total, like the most total value that you can really generate there. And that's kind of an objective analytical response to this, but within the word value, which I also kind of had to parse out, it's wins, it's the plus minus department, it's the incredible stats that you put up, and it's the big time moments that you have throughout the year. And like, there are different layers to that. And being able to sort of go through that and then go through that checklist of, okay, are you a player that adds wins? Are you a player that when your team is like, when you're on the floor, you're kicking ass. Uh, are you putting up the incredible stats that usually come with a, a stat like this? And are you putting up those big moments in those big time games? Like, I think those matter. And I think that there were instances in previous years, I think last year, I think is one of them. Nikola Jokic didn't really have a ton of big moments throughout the season. And there were some moments, especially in the latter half, uh, like right at the end of the year, where somebody like Joel Embiid took advantage of that moment. And like, I think, and Nikola Jokic did not. Like, I remember back to the Houston game that Nikola Jokic played where he was horrible. The team lost on the road to a horrible team. And Nicole, and Joel Embiid on the same night had like 50 points. And it's those kind of moments where they, they'll stick out in voters' minds, especially later in the year. So 
I do think that there are like there are reasons for that and there are reasons why people get caught up on those things, but that's just kind of how in my mind the MVP race has been defined over the course of these last 5 years or so. Yeah, I think the to the team concept is always what's kind of interesting is um what you have to be careful about is like I said, if a GM builds a bad roster, you should not get credit for that. Um, this is something that I really happened upon. The biggest reason why I, I've I've tried to search for because it, you know honestly, like Nicola benefited from this when it was like, well, look what he's done with these guys with Austin Rivers and these this that and the other. And my thing with those, and I thought Jokic deserved both both awards that he won it and last year's. Um, well. Last year's is really tough, but um, the thing with me, though, is you should not get credit for bad teammates, nor should you be punished for having good ones, in large part because I do think that you should be able to look at a guy's play and be like, you know what, they're pretty good. Like, he makes them better. Like, And that was honestly a large part of like Nicola's MVP was, you know, he got them to those points in the season where it was like, this is still a 50 win team, a 48 win team, a, a top six seed in the, in the playoffs. Um, and part of that is because he made Aaron Gordon and Will Barton and Monte Morris look really good. Like he made them better. You should make your teammates better. And so when we get into um, the argument of like, well, okay, sure. Like the impact or winning or net rating or offense or these, these kind of things are not that important because look at his teammates you don't get credit for not having good guys. Like you have what you, you get, what you get, and you don't make a fuss. It's a thing that you teach your kids when they're little, and like that's a big thing here. Is like you have your guys, they have their guys, and maybe if you have different guys, you can win the award. But the bar needs to be just how did you perform, not how did you perform given mitigating circumstances, because that's not fair to the guys that are in good one. It's not. I never want to hold it against the player that they have good luck nor do I want to hold it against a player that they have bad luck. I just want to be able to say, like, this is how it is. I'm willing to say, like, yeah, look, he did have bad luck, and that's why, you know, maybe he did, he would have won this award had things been different. But they weren't. Like, you you have to, I think, um, be very even-keeled with not arbitrarily making, like, oh, he gets bonus points for this. No, 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 okay. He, he had his guys. He had five guys on the floor. This other guy had five guys on the floor. How did they do? How did they compete? How did they win? And all those things, I think, is to me, that's the most honest and objective way to reach the answer of who's most valuable. Oh, and to be fair, like uh, when I when I added my own MVP criteria here, it's it's the most value. And that's where I think you kind of start separating some of these bits of conversation where it, it is something that you have to start to kind of quant- you have to quantify that you have to come up with a way of being as objective as possible in these situations and take away the extenuating circumstances if you can. And you mentioned all the different voters, and this is something that I really, truly believe, which is um, the conversation online has gotten to such a point that there's this idea that there are good voters and bad voters. And that's really obnoxious to me where you have the pure hoopers that are like, why are these nerds getting a vote? And then on the other side, you do have people that are like, they don't even pay attention to advanced analytics. Like they're just narrative voters. That's okay. Like, Ramona Shelburne covers this league in incredible detail, and she's been covering it a long time. Ramona's criteria is, who is the story of the season? That's okay. It is good to have multiple perspectives within the, like, there are voters that literally their approach, I've talked to them, and they're like, I ask the coaches that I know. 
and I ask them, like, who do you think is most valuable? Because I want to reflect what the players and coaches think. That's a perfectly valid way to go about it. Like, are there going to be biases inherent? Yes, but that's why the, the league expanded it to 100 voters, and the league's done a very good job of honestly representing all swaths from analysts, aka nerds, to like former players, to TV hosts, to the first take guys, to international, to beat writers who I think make up rightfully the the bulk of it because they see these guys every single night. They've done a very good job of getting that representative sample, um, which is why, you know, again, I'll, I'll say that last year's vote was, you could tell was so poisoned because you had people that broke away from things that they knew were correct, that they knew was the way that they would vote things, and they ignored them because of the amount of pressure that was put on them around the conversation around the award. With that in mind, let's transition to this season. Let's transition to the guys that we think have sort of led the conversation up to this point. We're going to talk about the front runners. We're going to talk about kind of the long list. That's how I really kind of boiled down my own personal list was I, I compiled a list of, I think it was 13 names that I had. And then kind of narrowed those down into different tiers. And we could talk about those tiers. We could talk about uh, a, an article that you wrote for the Action Network that I am going to link below and I'm going to put a pop-up on the screen right now uh, just to make sure that everybody knows, hey, you can get Matt's work and get his perspective on the award in written form as well. Uh, but no, I just wanted to be able to uh, give this opportunity. Do you want to start at kind of the, the top of the list here or do you want to start sort of like the long list and then narrow it down? No, I'll start at the top. Um, you know, the, to me, the three guys, and I can even say the order that I would have him have him in right now because it's early enough. Um, at the end of the year, I'm much more like, well, I don't want to put them in order because I need to do the, all of the work on them. Um, the three guys I have at the top right now in their own tier, it's Nikola Jokic, followed by I would honestly say Shea Gillis Alexander is my number two, and then Joel Embiid. Um, and those three guys have been absolutely phenomenal. It is incredible that. Joel Embiid is so much better than he has been in any previous season, so much better than he was last year when he won MVP, um, having an absolutely sensational season. The assists are a big part of that. Nick Nurse has programmed in a lot more opportunities for him with that, but Joel deserves a lot of credit for seeing the floor and being willing to be a playmaker a lot more. He said last year, like, well, if I wanted to, I could make a lot more passes, and I was kind of like, I don't know about that, and he's done it. Uh, now, got to do it in the playoffs when you're double teamed, but he's been much better at it. The, the, the Sixers have built a better system around him to alleviate those pressures. He's been terrific. Uh, I was shocked this morning that, you know, the a Nuggets fan response will understandably be, well, yeah, because Jamal Murray's been out, and that's fair. Uh, but I will just say, like, look, the Thunder definably have a worse supporting cast than the Nuggets. The Nuggets just won the NBA title. And yet the Thunder with Shea Gildas-Alexander on the floor are outscoring opponents by more than when Jokic is on the court. That's incredible for Shea Gildas-Alexander. That doesn't make him number one. What it does say is that Shea is playing at an absolutely phenomenal, incredible level. And a lot of this is for the folks that were um, so clamoring last year about, look, well, I like my MVPs to play defense. Then you need to be on the Shea Gildas-Alexander train because there is nobody in the league right now, I think, that controls the game on both ends the way that he does. He makes plays, strips the ball, gets downhill, loops between two defenders, draws a foul and finishes and one. Shea is unbelievable. And in any other year, it would honestly be these two guys. But somehow, somehow, Nikola freaking Jokic is even better. The numbers, he's on pace for the number one VORP of all time. He's on pace for the number one BPM of all time. He's on pace for the number one EPM of all. Like the advanced metrics are always going to love him. And we know that. 
But we also know that when we watch the Nuggets and we see them and you look at the on-offs and you, you evaluate everything, no one controls the game the way that Jokic does. So Jokic has to be the front runner here. It's going to take Jokic either missing enough games for him not to qualify or, uh, how can I put this, deciding to throttle down um, in order to remove himself from the conversation because, like, Jokic played really hard to start this season and they will play more road games, which will, which will pull down some of his stuff. But the fact that they've been without Jamal Murray and he is still putting up the numbers and efficient, he's not even shooting well from three. He'll probably do better there. There's all these ways in which Jokic is probably going to play better. Like he's had back-to-back, what, 35-point triple doubles with no turnovers? The hell is that? Um, so, Disgusting. Yeah, so uh, there's just really no way to kind of put in context. The one, This is one of the things about Nikola is his numbers are so unbelievable that people naturally then are like, yeah, something has to be wrong with the numbers. Like the numbers can't equate. And there are players, a player in tier two and specifically where that's true, where you look at it and you go, yeah, those, those box numbers are incredible. And then you look at the, the impact stuff and you're like, yeah, no, he doesn't actually impact winning that much right now. Um, and that's important. Jokic does both. And so Jokic has to be number one. My favorite MVP candidate is Shea though. Like, Jokic doesn't need a third if he's the rightful guy I will advocate for him winning the award Um, and this is the thing that's happened honestly what's most remarkable about this right now is that Jokic is on pace to do the same thing he has done four years in a row which is no matter how much resistance there is to him you know oh this guy can't win it oh no he can't win it twice look at their record oh no he can't win it three times because of the history of it he hasn't done anything in the playoffs (laughs) ha 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 um there's always been like a God, but look, like we kind of got to We got to consider him like we have to include him no matter what. You have to have Nikola Jokic in the conversation, no matter much how, how much people don't want or even he himself doesn't want to be in the conversation. His play is so good. He demands it. That's an all time great level of performer. Lots of things to unpack there. Let's start with Jokic, obviously. Uh, plus 15.6 BPM is like you mentioned, highest of all time. 34.2 PER. He's actually lower on the true shooting than he was last year because his three-point percentage and his free throw percentage aren't as good. Uh, but he is averaging a career high in usage rate, a career high in assist rate, and a career low in turnover rate. Like, that's insane. And I put this out already. He is, like, a couple of years ago when he put out the 2,000-1,500 stat, he's on pace to break that to shatter the the points sure Uh, yeah to like 2200 points 760 some odd assists and he's nearly on pace for the rebounds he's at like 996 or something like that he's probably not going to break that because he has been healthy and like you said he will probably throttle down at some point because the nuggets have championship and, and playoff expectations so they they probably won't focus as heavily on the individual numbers but the individual numbers have been so good that you still have to have him at the top of this conversation. Um, I do think that Shea is too. I think that Shea is, is clearly second right now. And what he and the Thunder have done has been insane. Like, frankly, it is an awesome turnaround. He continues to get better every single year. His game continues to mature in ways that are very, very impressive. <laughs> the steals are crazy. He's averaging 2.5 steals per 36 minutes, and he already play, plays like a bunch, so it's really 2.4 steals per game. It's insane. Uh, but he has impacted the game on both ends at such a level that 
he's becoming one of those inevitable superstars. He's becoming one of those guys that people were struggling about whether they should have him in the top 10 or not. He's clearly a top 10 player. He might be top five right now. So I think that he has been unbelievable and deserves to be at the top here. Embiid, the passing like you mentioned, 6.6 assists per game is wild. Now it's coming on 3.7 turnovers per game. He's still a little bit turnover prone in comparison to these other guys. Like, and these, this is where the margins matter. Like Shea, for as much as he handles the balls at 2.2 turnovers per game, Jokic for as much as he handles it is at 2.9. So Embiid's turning it over a little bit more frequently with the added assists, but it just doesn't matter because they've become so much more dynamic on the offensive end with Maxi and and Embiid there kind of at that center instead of Harden and Embiid that he does deserve some credit for improving his game for figuring things out and becoming better uh so I do want to like make it very clear those are the top three I think there are other guys that could break into that conversation but if I had one sort of top three ballot right now it would be those guys in that order yeah and I think that they've they've separated themselves and so the question and it really is like of the next guys who can get into that top tier can they can they make this a four-man race um it's likely that one of the three will drop out, whether it's the Thunder regressing, Shea's had injury issues staying on the floor, whether it's um, Jokic or Embiid missing time. Like, the thing with the Jokic and Embiid is we have no question that they're going to put up the numbers and win production for them to be in this conversation if they're healthy. So for them, it's really is just about, like, are they going to play 65 plus? And even if they play, you know, I mean, here's the thing is, like, if they miss... If they play 66 and the other one plays 70, that's going to be meaningful when we get into trying to parse between these get two guys because it was meaningful in 2021. So um, that is a, we, that's why we're a long way away from this. But I, th- I just don't know how you don't have those three at the top and then a gap with everybody else. Um, you know, it's funny. I do MVP update on Mondays and I've done those in five player tiers of basically being like, here's tier one, here's tier two, here's tier three. For the article, I broke it down into a little bit more granular detail where there's the top three and then there's four guys uh, in the second tier. And, you know, look, I think um, if I'm looking at, at at the guys, I think uh, that there's probably one guy that is a uh, former MVP that can probably get back into that four range and be like, oh, we can't forget about this guy. Uh, his team's underperforming in my estimation a little bit, but the wins are there. Uh, and that's Giannis is, um, I think Giannis is probably the next guy that you need to add in. And I've been reluctant because I think the Bucks are a tire fire. They're just a tire fire with a really good record. Um, and so, but the offense has been great and his numbers are incredible. So to me, it's like Giannis can get in that next tier. And then after that, it's really like, if the Warriors are as good as the the advanced numbers say, Steph's going to be back in that conversation because they had Steph there early on. Um, and if not, then Steph, like Steph's, the team just won't be good enough. Like You're going to have to win 50-plus games to be MVP this year. You just will be. And the Warriors look like they're going to have a hard time doing that. If that's wrong and the Warriors get there, then Steph's absolutely playing at a level where he can, he can get to that conversation. Um, how many guys are, would you say are in your second tier? I was just going to talk about that. I've got five. I've got five guys that are in my second tier. I can list them here. I think Giannis and Steph are definitely there. I think Luca is in my second tier. I think Tatum is in my second tier. Actually, oh no, I've got six total. I'm sorry. I've got Giannis, Steph, Luca, Tatum, KD, and Tyrese Halliburton. Okay. Um. 
I think the most interesting name to kind of talk about, hmm. I guess here's like a question is how far do you think Giannis is off of the, of tier one? It's tough, right? Because I think that, I think that prior to this season, I was already going to knock him down a little bit due to some of the usage and the efficiency and the, the role that Damian Lillard was going to assume on that team. And to that degree, he's, he's done it a little bit. Dame has kind of underperformed a little bit though. And they've still found ways to win, but like not like some of the underlying metrics have been pretty bad. Um, I think that Giannis, he's got to show a little bit more just in terms of, man, this having this other supernatural presence on the offensive end, especially is really just impacting him in such a positive way on the offensive end. For whatever reason, it doesn't feel like they've meshed as well as I thought that they would. Now, there are some things that like, hey, it's pushing a little bit further in that direction like they they can do it but the pick and roll numbers have been odd the isolations and like the shooting for Giannis has not been good um the defensive individual stuff has been fine like that's that's been pretty good but the team defense like they're still kind of reeling from uh some of the early season stuff that they tried so I think I need some distance away from that in order to see it, but I think there's a possibility that it becomes a four team, a four player race in the next update that we do. But it might take that long for me to really kind of put him back into that conversation because it was so bad at the beginning. I think part of it is, you know, I talked about how I don't want to punish guys for having good teammates, and I don't. And so it's not about, well, Giannis has Dame, so he can't be MVP. That's that's not how I view it. But what I do view is, if you look at it, Giannis is a sister down because Dame's taken over a portion of the playmaking. So Giannis is less of an engine. And being the primary engine of a team is, honestly, like, it's a big deal. And it's one of the reasons, one of the many reasons why last year's vote was so, so messed up, um, is that there were other guys on the list that were legitimately, like, the engines of their team, including Giannis. Like, Giannis was the engine of the number one seed in the East last year. Like, he was a, he was the engine. He was the one that ran things. Now it's, like, a little bit less. He's still a primary engine, but he shares a lot of that duty with, with Dame. And so if you take less responsibility, like, you can have superstar teammates as long as your responsibility is still at the level of the other guys. And you can win if you have less responsibility but are more efficient and productive and impactful. But Giannis hasn't been any of those things, right? He hasn't been as efficient or as impactful, hasn't won at the same level. And if we look at his responsibilities, they're a little bit less. And so like that all, I think, kind of influences things. On the flip side of this, you have the most interesting candidate, which is Luka Doncic, um, who he's averaging 31, 8, and 8. Pretty good. Like, that's amazing. Like that's <laughs> incredible. That's super LeBron numbers. That's absolutely berserk. They outscore opponents by zero point six points with him on the floor per hundred possessions. And Mavericks fans are very adamant that that's about the roster. It's not about Luca. It's just about the roster. No matter who they get. And I am kind of like, you know, before he got hurt, KP was playing pretty damn good in in Boston, and everybody was like really raving about his impact. He's one of the highest guys in EPM. Spencer Dinwiddie, extremely good on off numbers with the Brooklyn Nets. He's been playing absolutely phenomenal. Jalen Brunson's the best player on the New York Knicks. All three of those players play with Luka Doncic. Um, 
it's not that I don't think Luca's good. It's not that I don't think Luca. Like I'm not saying like Luca sucks. There was a thread that was like Luca's overrated and didn't properly put context on if he's if he is overrated. What's like the floor of it? Like where is he then? Because if you just say a guy's overrated, then everybody's like, oh, so he sucks. And it's like, no, he's just overestimated by how people perceive these things. And the reality is, like, if you really, if you really dig in, you watch these games. Like, you will wind up being like, why aren't they outscoring? Like, they're just not beating teams. He's putting up 31 and 8, and they're just not beating teams. They have a negative, they are below 500 versus teams over 500. They can't get wins versus good teams. Two of the wins are versus the Magic without two starters and the Rockets. Like, they've lost all the games versus good opponents. So, so now that can change over the course of a season. If he keeps this up, you should believe that it'll change over the short course of a season. Um, but if you're losing the minutes with him on the court, like this, this Thunder game, I thought was like an excellent example. Shea didn't play great in that game. Like he just didn't. He didn't play great. Luca was the best player on the floor by far. He was insane in that game. He had like 35, 10, and 16. It was insane. He was a minus seven. Okay. Yeah. And you go like, well, that's not his fault. Okay. Maybe you're right. Maybe it's not his fault that they're minus seven. I'm willing to believe that. But it's also definably clear that he is not doing whatever is necessary to get them to a plus. He doesn't get credit for it. He just doesn't get credit for it. You don't have to dock him for it. But you do have to be bear in mind that it's not translating to winning. Their record is good. They've beaten up on the bad teams. I think they're going to be a playoff team. Luka's going to be a beast to deal with in the playoffs. But like, if we're talking this level, if we're talking Shea, Yoke, Embiid, Giannis, Steph, Luca's not at that level, not yet this season. It is, and, and I think this goes for Tyrese Halliburton as well. It is interesting to talk about how much some of these MVP con- candidates are responsible for the defense of their teams and like what the based off of what their role is. And it's one of the reasons why Jokic receives some crit- criticism, but just also some like credit for his ability to kind of be within a functional defense for Denver last year and in, and in years past where hey, they haven't been perfect, but they've been better when he's on the floor, things like that. For Dallas, like they're 26th right now in defense on cleaning the glass. Indiana is 29th. Neither of those teams can guard a chair. And that is kind of what it takes for win equity. It's what it takes for, hey, how much do you whip ass when you're on the floor or something that you like to say. Uh, those guys are definitely great elite offensive talents, but something that might separate them from the top of the top of these conversations is that their teams are not winning. And one of the reasons for that is the defensive side of things. So I look at those two guys in particular in my, my tier two as, man, this, this is, it feels like it should be better based off of their numbers, but it's probably not at the level of the top tier. So I... I'll, I want to cape for Tyrese a little bit here. Okay. Um, and, w- and we can kind of start with this, which is Tyrese is the primary engine of a team that when he's on the floor averages 120 points per 100 possessions. It's crazy. Yeah. When Luca's on the floor, it's still incredible. It's 116.6. That's amazing. It's not as good as Halley. Um, And then if we look at efficiency-wise, like... Hallie's shooting 52, 45, 80. 52, 45, 80. And those numbers will probably come back down. But if we're talking about it right now, that's where they're at. Luca's at 49, which is great. 39, which is great for his, for his usage. And 76 from the line. Like, 
really good for his his insane usage. Just not as good as Halliburton, which is kind of why, even though I think Halliburton is actually a worse defender than Luca. And also, I'll say this: like Tyrese's problem. Here's like an interesting question. Okay, if Luca's a better defender but doesn't try and chooses to complain to the officials instead of getting back, and Tyrese tries but is worse than Luca, which is worse? Is it's it like, worse to be worse or is it worse to not try? I think it's probably worse to be worse. It's one of the reasons why I struggle to have guys like Trey and Dame in this conversation is they're like, they're just never going to impact it ever. And at least with Luca, when I know that he's locked in, which is albeit rare, uh, when I know that he's locked in, I know he's going to give uh, the, that effort that actually impacts the game in a positive way. And that to me, I think is the separator. But I know from like experience and when you talk about, hey, and if Indiana knows that he's trying, then those teammates are probably going to try harder. And if Dallas, like we saw last year, if those guys know that he's not trying, then you can sometimes see the wheels come off. And I think yeah. we saw that last year, too. Yeah, I agree. So um, I've got Hallie there. Like, Luke has got to be tier two. You just can't ignore 31, eight and eight. And like he's a tick from being closer to it being 32, 9, and 9. And that's just insane. Again, I'm really good efficiency. Um, but I do think it's tier two. And so like that that to me is like the the heavyweights. And then the name that you mentioned that I think is really interesting to kind of talk about is Tatum, who <sighs> it's fascinating, right? Last year he averaged over 30 a game. He's only at 27.4 this year. So his primary job is scoring, and he's only at 27.4. His assists are down because Jalen Brown has taken over a bigger chunk of the uh, shot creation, and you've also got Drew Holiday. So his assists are down. So he's got he's averaging 27, 8.7 boards, which is awesome. Um, four assists per game, and he's shooting 50% from the field, 36% from three. Could get that up a little bit. Uh, the thing is, though, is is the Celtics with him on the floor to destroy everyone. Like there was a while there when it was when he was on the court, they were just absolutely insane. And he's really the guy. It's dropped down to ten point seven now. He he's the guy that you know everyone goes like, well, the strength of the the strength of the Celtics. You know, this is about yeah, sure, the numbers are good for for Tatum on court because the roster is so good. Except that there is this is where if you do pay attention to the off courts, and again I don't, but if you do pay attention to the off courts, this is where I think it really starts to impact things because um they have improved a little bit. There was a while where it was like they were eighteen plus eighteen with him and minus twelve without him. That stabilized a little bit now to like eleven and, and six. So they've gotten better in the non Tatum minutes and KP missing has dragged him down the starters minutes a little bit, but his impact has been really heavy. And then the number one team in the East. So if you're an old school kind of person and you just go, who's the best player on the best team, the best player on the best team right now is Jason Tatum. And that would be why he has to be in this conversation. But um, I can't get to putting him up there. I think he can do better. And so I'm not going to let him, I'm not going to put him at, at MVP status until he, like, I think he can be a 38 and five guy on really good efficiency. And if he plays like that, he'll be tier one, but he's going to have to get there. Now, what I will say, and just kind of going through the numbers here for Tatum specifically, career high and true shooting percentage. Like yep. that is, that is something where he's taking more valuable shots in general, and he's making each of those individual shots at a, at a higher clip. Uh, that is nice. That's good to see. 
career high in rebounding as he's moved to more towards a power forward position when they play with just one big as opposed to two a little bit more frequently. Um, and he's one of their best defenders, despite the fact that he plays with Drew Holiday and he plays with Chris Porzingis, who has been one of the better rim protectors. So I've been pretty impressed with how he has handled things. And I just consider him like he, I think he's going to be a perennial tier two guy. Like, I just think that's that's who he is, where he is not one of the generational talents in the NBA right now. And that's OK. You can still with him, win with him as your best player because he is that good and because he can raise his level in the playoffs that much. But when it comes to the actual MVP of the league, the guy who adds the most value, this is like the name that I think of when I think of that particular criteria, because it's not the most value, despite the fact that he adds a ton of value every single year. I think one of the interesting questions, because I was arguing about this with Seth Partnow over the weekend, is if you ask Jason Tatum to do what Luka Doncic does, he would do it worse. You know? They wouldn't be as good. The Mavericks wouldn't be as good because Tatum can't do what Luka does. But the difference also is you wouldn't maybe have to. Right? And like, how valuable is it to have a guy that doesn't need the ball as much as Luka Doncic does for whatever reason? You know? Luka wants the ball all the time. He wants the ball all the time. Every single second of every single game, he wants the ball. Tatum is happy to play off ball. Tatum works off ball. And Tatum's a phenomenal defender. Like, Tatum is underrated as a defender. He is incredible he's long and athletic with great quickness good principles doesn't foul contest shots and rebounds tatum's awesome defensively and um i think he belongs in that in that tier absolutely um so i get uh kind of why you got those guys kind of there um what's your tier three well i've got one more guy in tier two is kd um the numbers that and now he would probably be at the t- the bottom of my tier two. The way that I classified this from a tier perspective was, hey, here are the best contenders in tier one. Here's the tier below guys. Tier three is these are the guys that have missed time but can make it up. And then tier four is just not really a part of the convo for me. Um, so let's do KD real quick. Elite efficiency. Like this is one of the most efficient shooting seasons he's ever had in his career. He continues to level up as a playmaker and continues to do great things. Uh, I We did just watch the Nuggets and the Suns and him go 0 of 10 in the second half while being guarded by a 21-year-old in, in a lot of those minutes. So I think that there is still some like drop-off when, when he doesn't get the things that he wants, that him being able to impact the game in those other ways is a little bit lesser than some of these other guys. Uh, but I do think that he deserves at least a shout here. Like he, he would be in the top 10 if I had a top 10. He would not be in mine. Mm. Um, I know Booker's played fewer games and that does matter. Booker's the most important player on that team. Booker's the best he, player on that. Team. He is Even in my tier Katie's three to be clear. Efficiency. Uh, Booker, like, Booker and Fox are in my tier three because like, I, I can't like put them there now, but I, I do expect to be able to flip them for sure. So let me ask you this. Um, if you, I, I'll make the argument that if you can't like, can you absolutely say KD has been the better player on the Suns? No. Okay. Then he can't be on the list. Like you can remove both of them and that's fine. 
but I would say like this is a big criteria for me. If you can't tell who the best player is, then the team is so good that you are unable to determine who's most valuable. Like it's just not possible to be able to do that. Um, and so like this is the problem that the Warriors have with Steph and KD is KD was so good in those seasons and Steph was the most important player and there was no real way to parse through them. And people would be like that it was wrong. They didn't get votes. And Warriors fans would be like, yeah, it should, the number one should have been Steph and two should have been KD and three should have been Draymond. Um, <laughs> but like if, if that's the situation, then there, there does have to be a threshold. where we're just like, we're not able to determine it. You know, the team is so good. Like you're, and that's sucks for them. But I do think that that's accurate. Now for me, KD's efficiency, like, good God, like it is insane. It is like, I, I, you watch him is is a good way to do this. It's just like look at how many places on the floor Kevin Durant can hit shots. Apparently, if he's not being defended by Peyton Watson, um, like KD this season, ninety fourth percentile at the rim. He's shooting seventy six percent there. Fifty two percent or fifty second percentile for mid range. Forty four percent and forty nine percent, which is ninety eighth percentile from three point range. Oh, and by the way, he's eighty nine point six ninety percent from the line. Oh, like, and by the way, like he hasn't missed a free throw since like October. It's insane, right? <laughs> but Booker's contributions and playmaking are so evident. Like Booker has evolved so much in what he does in making the Suns go from a very isocentric, predictable offense to a much more dynamic one. And it's really important. So for me, it's clearly Booker. But I would say that if you can't, if you can't determine between them, because a, a good example of this is Dame can be awesome. Giannis is the best player. And Damana Sabonis can be great, but Fox is their best player this season. And you should be able to answer without hesitation who the best player is. And as good as KD has been, for me, I am able to say it's Booker. Where would you have Fox in this if he, was, if he had played 20 games as opposed to the number that he's played? I'd still have him kind of similar to where it's at, mostly because like I'm just a kind of a king skeptic that when you kind of dig into a lot of the advanced stuff, you're kind of like they're they're good, but like they're probably not as good as their record. Um, and I'll, I will cop to this is that Fox has more of a track record than Shea Gillers Alexander. Like Fox has been doing this for longer. But for whatever reason, I'm much more like, oh, yeah, Shea's this guy than I am De'Aaron Fox is a 30 per game scorer. Like, it's just for me, I am not at, not at I believe that De'Aaron Fox is a 30 per game scorer. I'm like 28. That sounds right. But 30, that 30 mark is really significant when we start to evaluate these guys because you're starting to get into you could compete for uh, for scoring leader, which should not be as big of a thing as it is, but it's a thing. It is a production thing. Um, Fox's efficiency has been really good, and obviously he's awesome defensively. I, I love De'Aaron, and I love the Kings. Like, how do you not love watching them play? I can't get to, like, wow, he's one of the, you know, f ba the ballot's five, right? And so we kind of, when we were talking about this before the show, we were like, okay, could absolutely win it, um, deserves to be in the conversation, like is just kind of floating there. And De'Aaron Fox is one of those guys. I think he deserves to be in the conversation, but there is no scenario where I see him being vote. Like, I don't know who's going to vote for him over Giannis, him over, um, even Devin Booker, him over Luca, even, um, him and especially not the top three. And maybe that changes, but that's where I'm at right now with De'Aaron Fox. Two more kind of things here. Of, Anthony Edwards, Tyrese Maxey, 
Jalen Brunson, Zion Williamson, and pick your favorite Orlando Magic uh, forward. Who would you like credit the most for an MVP share? Hmm. Give me the names again. Anthony Edwards, Tyrese Maxey, Jalen Brunson, Zion Williamson, and we'll go with Paolo Bancaro. Uh, I will go Ant because he is that integral to their defense. Ant's production stuff, like 26, 6, and 5. Good. You know, good. Uh, His shooting numbers, 46, 38, 86. Good. The advanced metrics don't show a lot, um, but I do think that there is something to be said for when your team is number one in their conference and they are making this kind of a, of a jump. And again, like you are definably the best player. And I don't think anybody would say that that cat's better. I think everybody would say that ants better Then I think you did really do deserve credit there. I would give him the most because of the, like what he's, whatever, like his impact, his con- contributions are leading to wins. Now the wolves, the problem with it with them is um, this is the Russell Westbrook correlation where, in 2017, a big reason why I settled against Russ was, okay, Russ is an offensive player, and the Thunder offense wasn't very good. They won with defense. Now, Ant contributes more on defense than Russ did, but Ant also does way less on offense. So it's not like he's keeping them afloat either. Like That's an argument for Russ. It's like, yeah, the offense wasn't good. Imagine how bad it would be uh, if Russ wasn't there. By the way, Demonis Sabonis was on that team, ironically. Um, <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, so... I would definitely go Ant there. The other guys to me, like Jalen, Jalen's actually got a surprisingly pretty good case. Like he's at 25, four and six on a slower pace. Uh, he's shooting 47% from three, which that's likely to go down. But I think that's in a conversation. Uh, I have a name that you haven't mentioned that I think you need to. You, you I, need I to was just thinking about it. Was it LeBron? Yes. Yeah. He's pretty good. It's pretty good. And to be able to do this, I I don't want to make the narrative argument to be doing this in his 21st NBA season is just unfathomable. And so that's why he should win. Uh, Now it is unfathomable and he should be credited for it. But again, when I make the case for most value added like that to me, I think is where it kind of separates. But he has been unbelievable and deserves a lot of credit for their wins. I mean, a lot of this is like, all right, uh, Tatum's average is scoring more at 27. LeBron's only at 24. Um, but LeBron's at 7.6 rebounds to Tatum's at 8.7. That's nuts. Um, and LeBron's averaging 2.2 stocks per game on top yeah. of six assists per game, even though none of his guys can shoot. And he's shooting 55-38. His free throws are terrible at 69%. His advanced numbers are really good. And the biggest thing with LeBron for me is that they're a team that's over 500 that without him, they die. Like they are garbage when LeBron's not on the floor. It, he steps off and that team goes to absolute garbage. He slowed down a little bit last two weeks. So maybe that's stabilizing. Um, we'll see what that does to their record, whether Davis can, can step up or not, or the team just gets healthier and better. Um, but it's an interesting kind of a good comparison point to me, honestly, is between him and Steph as these two kind of old heads that are in this conversation. And I don't think either of them win for various reasons. Um, but with LeBron on the court, the Lakers are plus 5.8. And without him, they drop to 13.2. Now, again, like if you start, if you, I'm about how, how are you on the court? Right. And that's why he doesn't crack into that top 
really, if we're if we're being serious about it, he's probably not in my top, I don't know, six or seven guys. But they're plus 5.8 with him on the floor, terrible without him. And then you go to Curry, and everyone's going to be like, it's early, it's noise. Okay, maybe. That's that's fair. But they have been outscored with Steph on the floor, minus 1.9 to 3.7 when he, right. he's plus 3.7 when he's off court. Does that mean that Steph Curry is washed? Does that mean Steph Curry is bad? No, look at the man. He's shooting 12 threes a game and shooting like 42% on him. It's nuts. All of his advanced, advanced metrics are incredible. But the bar is you have to do whatever it takes to lift your team. And so far, against a very tough schedule, Steph hasn't done it. So like LeBron would get the edge to me over Steph because he, with what he's had in front of him, has been like he's managed to impact winning more. Uh, it, who's been a better player this season is a different question. If you ask me who's been the better player this season, it's the Steph Curry by a country mile. But if you ask me like who's impacted winning more, it's been LeBron. Interesting to hear. Interesting, interesting concept there, and something that might up kind of update throughout the year, and might might even be different by the next time we check in. Um, final thing here. You said Jokic, SGA. And Embiid is your top tier. Which player, and give me give me the one singular guy that you think the next time that we speak will have cracked that conversation? Oh, that's a good question. That's a good question, Ryan. I'm going to say Tatum. I just think his efficiency is going to improve and he's got enough help around him. And I like his game. I think Tatum is a little underrated and you kind of touched on it. There is um, in the betting conversations. One of the reasons why he's not considered to be a good MVP bet is this notion of like, you're never going to think of Jason Tatum as the guy. Like you're never going to think of Jason Tatum as a guy. And that might be true, but there's a way for Jason Tatum to win this by being the last guy standing where Mm. If Jokic and Embiid don't qualify for whatever reason, and Shea doesn't, or if the Thunder regress, like whose team success are we most confident in? And for me, it's Boston. Like I'm absolutely confident Boston's going to win 55 plus. So with that level of confidence, I know that Tatum's going to be in that discussion. Like Tatum's already where he's at, and he's having like a down year from a production standpoint. If he goes on a tear, dropping 40 a night on great efficiency. All those metrics are going to go up. His on-court's going to go up. It's already really high. And his his case will look a lot better. Uh, now, if you ask me, like, the, the problem I keep getting to, and I've talked about this on Buckets, my betting podcast, is just, if Yoke plays 65, what guy are you really saying is more valuable than Yoke? And, like, I don't have an answer for that. I just I just don't. There's a reason he's the betting favorite. If Yoke's going to continue to play like this, I just don't. I don't know how anybody gets past him. You could have, the Thunder can get the one seed, and it's still going to be like, yeah, I don't know, man. Like, Joker, like, that's great for for them, but, like, the Celtics can win, you know, six more games than the Nuggets. And it's still going to be like, yeah, I don't know, man. Joker averaged 29, 13, and 10 on exceptional true shooting with the best advanced numbers, and his team absolutely killed everybody when he played. 
Um, it's really hard to find angles for them to get ahead of them. But I'll say Tatum as far as the one guy I think that will get be in the next conversation. I think Tatum's fair. I think Giannis is probably fair. Uh, the Bucks do to me seem like a team that, hey, it might take the first 20 games in order to figure out what exactly works, what exactly doesn't. And then you just lean into it and Giannis goes just full Hulk mode and, and they are in the, the conversation for first place in the East at that point. So there are, I, I think, possibilities for them to do it as well. Uh, but I, I kind of come back to that with you, that like Jokic is leading the league in points, rebounds, and assists right now. Like, if you're talking about most valuable, if you're talking about most impactful, <laughs> that's it's hard to get past that, okay. too. I think that matters, especially with the fact that he missed one game. Like, I think it's an impressive stat. We do... We have to be like, like when 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 the Nuggets folks say that stat, we got to be like, Jokic is leading in points, rebounds, and assists, in part because they played the most games. Like we sure. just we we gotta we <laughs> we gotta add that on there because it represents the idea that he's it's per game and it's raw numbers. Now, like, look, like he's still up there in all these categories, and I've used that before. Uh, like a couple of years ago, Fred Van Vliet was like top five in assists and threes made. And I was like, do you have any idea how valuable it is to have your starting point guard be top five in assists and threes made? Um, so it matters. But like these are the little details, I think, that are important for for keeping the race in the most accurate perspective. We will see how it continues to evolve. I am very curious to see what our next check in is going to look like. He is Matt Moore of the Action Network, host of Buckets on the Action Network uh, kind of feed, as well as Locked on Nuggets. Make sure to go check out all of his stuff. Thank you, Matt, for popping on with me. We'll, we'll check in again soon, all right? Thanks for having me. All right, joined now by Brandon Duenas, who is the host of AZ Sports Zone and does Locked on Suns and is at Bright Side of the Sun. Really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, let's talk about the Phoenix Suns. Let's talk about a team that for a while it didn't look as healthy as expected. We actually talked uh, probably about three, four weeks ago or so about, hey, man, things have not been as good as as might have envisioned at the beginning. And then they rattle off seven in a row and they get Booker back healthy and he rolls an ankle ultimately just, just recently. But it has felt like the Suns have kind of hit a turning point here at this part of the season. Uh, Kevin Durant, Devin Booker, they've been awesome when they played. Yeah, no, de- definitely. And I remember I was on the show and we were t- I was telling you I was not panicking at, at, at the time. And this is when things were, uh, stocks were at a low at that point. Um, <clears throat> they've definitely kind of righted the ship. A lot of that has to do with Booker coming back. Obviously, he's he and Durant are the engines that drive this team. And whenever they have one of the two without Beal, uh, it's it's tough to win games in this league. Like, you need help. And um, it, there, a lot of their problems are just kind of fixed immediately by Booker returning um, because that in turn, just the domino effect of all the role players kind of returning to uh, closer to what their role is supposed to be. I think that helped as well. Um, There's just so many factors when a star returns like that. Like you see that with, with any team really like, I mean, we we all saw how important Jamal Murray was for the Nuggets when, when he came back, there's it's an, and it's not all just about that one player. It's about the, the domino effect that I think it has on the rest of the roster. So, uh, yeah, I mean, obviously having Booker back and, and him and Durant playing at an unreal level this season, it's been really fun to watch. Um, obviously, all the injuries and, and whatnot have added to uh, the, chaos, the chaos, but it's looking like we're uh, finally starting to hit a stride right now. 12-8 and eight overall, 
eight and two in the last 10 games. We're recording this before the in-season tournament game on Tuesday night. So uh, we'll, we'll see what happens with, uh, with everything that goes on, but eighth in net rating, eighth in offensive rating, 17th in defensive rating on cleaning the glass, a little bit better on the defensive numbers than I kind of expected here. Uh, what do you think's gone into that during this stretch? And, and how have they sort of rounded into form on that end, at least a little bit better than maybe some others thought? Yeah, so I think it's a few things. I think uh, Vogel should get some credit. I think uh, Durant's really played. Uh, he's impressed me defensively. Just, I mean, he's he's not really someone that's going to do a lot of on ball or like, you know, chase around the best player 24-7. But he <clears throat> can definitely uh, do the weak side rim protection, his his ability to close out and make uh, contest tough shots and just having two seven footers on the court at all times, pretty much. Uh, Nurkic, uh, I'm not going to get into too much because he's, I still have some concerns about him defensively in, in a playoff setting, but I think uh, he tries, he definitely tries on that end. And that's, that's all you can really ask for at that point. But uh, I think the main identity defensively starts with Jordan Goodwin and uh, Josh Akogi, Nasir Little, uh, Drew Eubanks, just these energy guys that just go nonstop. They're just like energizer bunnies, and uh, they're they're grabbing every offensive rebound. They're diving on the floor. They're uh, generating deflections. Just just picking up nine like full court. So I think that combination has kind of helped give them a little bit of a, a boost defensively. So uh, yeah, it's just kind of a mix of Vogel and I think just role players stepping up and knowing that they want to play, they have to defend. Now. With three stars, obviously, this is a little bit different, and we'll have a different conversation about the rotation at that point. But uh, only three games so far for Bradley Beal. Are you sounding any alarm bells yet for the health? Like, what's what's been going on lately? Yes, uh, it's, it's not good. Like, whenever there's just a, a very loose timetable, I feel like. Um, I thought they probably rushed him back a little bit sooner than they should have. His backs are very tricky and you don't want to, and I think they kind of learned their lesson from that. So that's, that's why they've been kind of vague, but I, I do think we will see him in December at some point. It's just a matter of when. Um, and I think they're just going to be really careful with his minutes. It, it's similar to uh, Booker in a way where he tried to rush back with his foot injury injury and just uh, book being book would, would not want to get subbed out of the game. He wanted to play 40 minutes and, you know, just especially in those close games. So sometimes you have to protect players from this, themselves. And I think uh, we'll, we'll see him back here soon. But if, if he if he doesn't return this year, this calendar year, then uh, I, I'll definitely hit the panic button after that. Yeah, because when you put as much money as you do into that trio, into those lineups, that's turning the, the salaries for Aiton and Chris Paul into that third star. Uh, obviously, it didn't really happen in that order, but uh, basically, it's it's been very fascinating to see how that has evolved, and and we haven't really been able to see what the ultimate end goal is with this team yet. So, uh, without getting into too much detail, because I think it's it's hard even to talk about what Beal's going to look like until he comes back. Uh, you mentioned the role players, and I think that I, that was an interesting point where you can have guys like Jordan Goodwin and Drew Eubanks and Nasir Little and, and Keita Bates-Giop and, and Yuta Watanabe and, and different players. I know that some of those guys you didn't mention but and are now kind of stuck to the bench. Mm -hmm. But there are different guys that you can mix and match and provide different combinations. So I'm curious, like when those three guys come back, what combinations are you looking forward to the most? 
I think just having the luxury of being able to have two of your big three on the court pretty much at all times, just the staggering and some of the floor spacing lineups specifically, like uh, just having, you know, Beal and then like Grayson Allen or Eric Gordon uh, with Booker and Durant, just uh, ultimate floor spacing lineups to give them more space to operate. And with Nurkic's passing ability, like there's some really fun offenses you could throw out there that I think are going to be tough to stop. But then um, at the same time, you could, you have all these energy guys that just, play their role to a team like a Goodwin or a Kogi or Bates Diop that you could surround the, the big three with. They're not going to need the ball to really make an impact. So I think there's a lot of fun combinations they could do. And and it's kind of funny. Like it's, it's turned into the Jordan Goodwin trade at this point. It's not the, it's not the Beal trade. He was a, it, it was a Goodwin deal. And same with Grayson Allen and the eight and Nurkic trade. Uh, Allen's been awesome. Uh, so yeah, I think a lot of these, these role guys, like they're, uh, with Beal coming back, they're definitely going to not have as much responsibility, but that's that's for the best. I think it just simplifies their role. Just play hard, defend, hit open shots. That's you're going to you know be an afterthought of the opponent's defense for the most part, just because of how much like attention Booker, Durant, and uh, Beal will get. So I think it's going to really open things up for them and just kind of enhance uh, what we've seen already. If we get to see it, it's still a giant if we we don't know if we'll ever see the big three, but uh, hopefully one day we will. Well, the good news is that Eric Gordon has been stepping up really well. Like he's, he has yeah. been unbelievable to watch and like he's taking seven threes a game, making 41% of them. Like just having that spacing, having somebody who can do some things on the offensive end, even when those three aren't out there uh, all at once mm-hmm. or even at all is just really, really valuable. Just one of the best ads of the off season for any team, for sure. Um, no, I, I'm still, I'm still a fan of this team. I, st- I still think that this team is, going to challenge Denver at the top of the West. I don't think that anything I've seen so far really changes that. Uh, those two teams, uh, these they faced off against each other last Friday. Uh, close matchup, obviously, without Murray and Gordon and then Booker and Beal. It's going to be a completely different mm-hmm. matchup when those teams face again. Uh, but I'm looking forward to seeing what it looks like at that point. Uh, the defensive numbers, we'll touch on that before we get to the IST. Uh, I'm looking at the defensive numbers. They look solid. Like it, it looks like yeah. those are sustainable numbers. And I was surprised when I thought that I was thinking, okay, maybe I'm going to find some shooting variants here. Maybe I'm going to find some, uh, abnormal numbers from like, Oh, they're not fouling at all or something like that. No, it's, it's been uh, just pretty solid defense. And then like the actual shooting luck hasn't really existed that much. So what do you think's gone into that other than just the energy guys? Is there something that, uh, Frank Vogel's implementing? Yeah, I think it's just how everyone just seems to be connected and like on the same page, which is obviously essential for any defense. But uh, with a team with this much turnover, you'd think they'd struggle a little bit on that end with communicating and learning how to play off one another defensively. But I feel like they've, they've done a good job of just in embracing in the storm and like weathering the storm with uh, when when teams go, go on certain offensive runs. Um, sorry, losing my voice here, but uh, oh, you're good. It you're looks like. Great. A, <clears throat> but yeah, so I don't know. I think they've just done a good job of being composed on that end for the most part. And uh, they, they lead the NBA in uh, blocks per game. So the rim protection has been there. They're altering shots. Like I, I think just having the size and switchability and, and just dogs like Kogi, Goodwin and Little, like those three specifically, I think uh, really up the energy and it's, it's in contagious. Like you'll see, uh, just the little things they do, I think that maybe sometimes the numbers don't even pick up on in, in the box score. But uh, overall, I think just 
the defensive rating when they're on the court is just it's it's better and uh yeah i think vogel gets a lot of credit as well just for, for some of the system like it's it's mostly matchup dependent too like I, that's the one thing that monty would struggle with a little bit i think he would keep his uh the same game plan almost like for for certain teams that it's just not going to translate as well or he'd be late to adjust whereas vogel's been very quick to adapt to who he's playing and and make adjustments before and be proactive so that's, that's another thing i think the coaching staff has done a great job the players are hungry they know they have to earn minutes now with all these injuries so that that's also another combination i wonder if that changes a little bit once the the stars all get healthy just because you're going to want those guys out there and there's only so much like positional flexibility that you have when you've got booker and beal out there at the same time so like they could go with another defensive guard but it makes you smaller or they could go with a defensive mm-hmm. wing to kind of pair with Durant in the in the front court, but uh, that leaves the point of attack guys at a little bit of a disadvantage. So I wonder if that kind of changes once they try to develop some chemistry. But I mean, if you're having a hundred and thirty offensive rating in those minutes, then it probably doesn't matter as much. So there's there's something to be said for that too. Uh, last thing here, Phoenix. We're so we're going to be recording this. The audio is coming out on Tuesday, and then we're. Uh, seeing this Tuesday night. The video will not be coming out until Wednesday, uh, but I just wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about the Suns versus the Lakers if you had an opportunity to, and whether you think the Suns can make it all the way to the finals. Yeah, so first off, this the game tonight was awesome. Uh, the Pacers-Celtics yeah. game was was great. I think the end season tournament's been a, a massive win. I was a little skeptical. That was just a money grab coming into the season. Like, wasn't uh, I was like, I was open to having my mind change and it's a hundred percent been changed. So I, Adam Silver, good job. Um, I think the Suns definitely have a shot. Uh, I, I feel pretty confident about them being the Lakers, honestly. Like I, I, I think uh, some Lakers fans are a little cocky over there with their two wins in the early in the season with no Booker or Beal. Uh, I, I don't, I think we match up pretty well with them. So that's, I, I'll just go out on a limb and say the Suns are going to smack the Lakers tomorrow. Um, the Kings, I, f- I think, are going to beat the Pelicans. So I, my prediction is Suns-Kings. I think the Kings will beat the Suns, and it'll be a Kings-Pacers final. Uh, Halliburton, Sabonis, just uh, wh- whoever wins that wins a trade. That's how it'll be settled. So that's <laughs> that's my prediction. I love it. That's amazing. And I got, I'm not going to lie, man. The Kings are so fun, and the Pacers are so fun that that would be so good for the NBA. Just like really two were. mid-market, like small market kind of teams having fun players. Have, like this is exactly what that moment is about because neither of them's probably making it to the finals. So like it, it would, this is exactly what the mid-season tournament should be about. So really, really yep. exciting stuff. Um, any parting thoughts on Phoenix before we get out of here? Um, nothing really just, I mean, at this point, everyone just kind of is waiting to see what the big three looks like. And for several reasons, like you mentioned some of them with the lineup stuff and, uh, just seeing how, what their identity looks like. So I, th- I think at this point, it's just a waiting game. Um, just gotta be patient. That's something all Suns fans have had to deal with this entire season. It's been frustrating, but, uh, you know, ho- hopefully we'll get to see the final product soon. We will see what happens. He is Brandon Duenas, uh, AZ Sports Zone. Uh, make sure to go check out his work at Bright Side of the Sun as well as for Locked On Suns. Brandon, really appreciate you taking the time, man. We'll talk in six weeks, all right? Sounds good, man. Thanks for having me.